five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the SpaceQ Podcast. Today we're featuring a Future in Space Operation Teleconference with Havard Grip from the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Havard spoke about the NASA Mars 2020 mission, which will include both a rover and helicopter. The Mars 2020 rover is similar to the Curiosity rover, whose mission is ongoing, but it will have some different instrumentation, including the first ever aircraft to fly on Mars, a helicopter. The Mars helicopter that will accompany the rover is quite small, weighing only 1.8 kilograms and is about 60 centimeters in width, though from blade tip to tip, it is 1.2 meters. The helicopter is battery powered and is recharged by a solar array. Flights will be short, lasting no more than 90 seconds, flying to a height of about 5 meters. The helicopter has a camera. It will fly ahead of the rover to survey the local terrain and then transmit the data it collects once it returns and lands at a safe location nearby the rover. It will not take off and land on the rover itself after the rover has landed on Mars. Listen in. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for inviting me uh, to speak on this topic. So again, my name is Howard Grip. Um, and I'm with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. And um, my role here is as the uh, Flight Control and Aerodynamics Lead for the Mars Helicopter Project. <clears throat> uh, and the Mars Helicopter, uh, what it is, is a technology demonstration that's planned for NASA's next rover mission to Mars. Uh, that mission launches next year in 2020. It's called Mars 2020. And it'll feature a rover uh, that is similar to the current Curiosity rover, but it will carry different instruments. And of course, it will carry uh, a small passenger, which will be the Mars helicopter. So the Mars helicopter will be attached underneath the uh, the belly of the rover uh, during launch and cruise and entry and landing. And then will be deployed on the surface after landing and from there on conduct uh, demonstration flights um, on Mars. So if you flip to uh, slide uh, number two, it's a little bit of an illustration of what we think uh, helicopter technology has the potential to bring to Mars exploration. Um, currently, we have um, we have uh, exploration capabilities uh, on Mars that include orbiters that can take uh, large uh, aerial uh, imagery uh, high, high, from you know high altitudes um, on the Martian surface, and we have uh, um, assets on the ground. Uh, stationary landers and rovers that uh, that also take de detailed pictures of the surface. Um, what we can do with a helicopter is we can get up to a high vantage point and traverse relatively unhindered, um, you know, the terrain and still get detailed images uh, of the surface. And so, so it brings in uh, an aerial dimension that is currently uh, missing from our exploration capabilities. Um, if you go to the next slide, slide number three, um, it's an illustration of how um, we envision a helicopter um, potentially acting uh, as a scout or reconnaissance platform for a future rover, or thinking even you know further into the future, 
Uh, if we send astronauts to Mars, they will also need a way to do reconnaissance in their uh, local area, and helicopters uh, could be the ideal platform for that. Um, going on to slide number four, uh, just you know, intended to communicate the fact that um, there are places where it just is not practical or even possible for rovers or humans to go. But helicopters uh, uh, are much more mobile uh, in that sense and, and could potentially go to places that, that would otherwise be inaccessible. So that uh, if you're going up to go to slide number five, it's just a very, uh, very brief summary of what uh, the Mars helicopter uh, technology demonstration is. Um, so it's a small vehicle. Um, with a coaxial rotor configuration. So coaxial rotor means that we have two rotors, one uh, spinning in the opposite direction from the other, and it measures one to two meter tip to tip and has a mass of about 1.8 kilograms. It's battery powered and can do flights of about 90 seconds at a time. And uh, and uh, after that, it recharges its batteries using a solar panel uh, on top uh, above the two rotors. Excuse me, Hobart? Yes. Yeah, Hovar, this is Dan. Could you say something about the choice of coaxial uh, rotor configuration? I mean, I know some terrestrial helicopters use coaxial rotor configuration, and one of the nice things about that is that you, you don't need a tail propeller. But mm -hmm. what, 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 what uh, is that of some special value for, for this implementation? The primary consideration when we went to the coaxial configuration was accommodation constraints. Uh, on, on the uh, host vehicle. Uh, we uh, determined that it would be the easiest uh, type of configuration to pack up and make, you know, as inconspicuous as possible on a host vehicle. Okay, thank you. So, as I said, uh, the helicopter is, you know, the Mars helicopter is a technology demonstration. So, if you go to slide six, you see us, uh, a cartoon that illustrates uh, the concept of operations for the helicopter. Uh, so as I mentioned, uh, we get dropped off from the rover after landing on Mars. We get dropped off in an area that is indicated here as a takeoff slash landing area. This is a pre-inspected area that we've determined uh, from images to be safe for takeoff and landing. And then the rover drives away, some distance away. And then from there on, we proceed to, to conduct flights where we climb vertically up to about a height of five meters. Then we do a little uh, excursion around the, in the local area and come back to the same uh, landing slash takeoff uh, area. And um, quick, and, quick uh, question: What what, yeah. what is the power requirements of the system? So, in terms of just in terms of the power and hover, it's um, I believe around 250 260 watts during normal hover. Uh, but we have quite a bit more, you know. Uh, we're making relatively conservative assumptions in terms of our, uh, uh, the power that we have uh, available to us. Uh, uh, so for do, uh, uh, the peak power that we can uh, get from the batteries is 510 watts. Uh, so that gives us what we need to really get um, to, to utilize all the uh, uh, trust margin that we have available aerodynamically. Did that answer your question? Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, 
Now, on some of the later flights, we may uh, also go to a, a new landing site uh, if we've determined uh, from images that it's safe uh, to land there. So one of the things about this being a technology demonstration, you know, because we're not there to, to perform, you know, so to say, a useful task for the Mars 2020 mission, we're there to, to demonstrate that the technology uh, is here uh, and ready uh, to be deployed on Mars. Um, what we, we, you know, what we ha have not included here is uh, uh, landing hazard avoidance, uh, which would be possible to do with the kinds of sensors that we have on the helicopter, but we did not develop that technology for, for this uh, mission. Instead, we rely on, on uh, landing and taking off in areas that we know to be safe. Going on to slide number seven, uh, there are certain challenges associated um, with uh, building a helicopter for Mars. And some of them are, you know, the same kinds of challenges that are faced by, by pretty much any, uh, space mission. Things like withstanding high launch loads, uh, vacuum compatibility, uh, dealing with temperature extremes, uh, planetary protection requirements in our case because we're going to Mars, uh, radiation, which have the potential to, uh, to upset electronics on the vehicle. Um, also, in our case, we need to navigate while we're flying, and we have to deal with the fact that we don't have any global navigation aids uh, like GPS or a strong magnetic field to help us navigate. We have a large communication time lag with Earth, which means that everything during these short flights need to happen autonomously on the vehicle. Uh, so all of those are, are uh, real challenges, but what really stands out when it comes to flying a helicopter on Mars is the role of the atmosphere. So obviously a helicopter needs atmosphere to fly, uh, but on Mars we have a CO2-based atmosphere that has a density of only about 1 to 2% of the density on Earth. So it's very thin, um, and so that, that really stands out you know, of, among these challenges. Now, we do have the benefit of having lower gravity uh, on Mars, about 38% of, uh, of the gravity on Earth. But that still doesn't offset, so to speak, the uh, thrust deficit that we uh, get from the uh, low density. If you go on to slide number eight, it's a sort of a dry slide in a sense, but I wanted to kind of take you through a, a sort of basic scaling argument, uh, the kind of thing you would do if you're first sitting down to design uh, a helicopter for Mars, just to have a look at kind of what are the fundamental, um, you know, uh, things that you have to deal with uh, in this environment and how do they affect the overall design. So one of the fundamentals in our case, because we're, you know, we have to be accommodated on a host vehicle is the rotor size. Uh, we can't just make an arbitrary large, uh, rotor. It's limited in size. And so uh, we have a rotor that has a radius of about 60 centimeters and that's about as large as, as we can make it. And then we have a, uh, other fundamentals is the density. As I mentioned, it's about 1% to 2% of Earth. I'm using 1% on this slide for uh, illustration. Uh, and then we have the speed of sound, which is 76% roughly of what it is on Earth. And that, you know, is important for reasons that I'll get to in a second. And then we have gravity, as I mentioned, is 38% of uh, gravity on Earth. And so the reason that the speed of sound matters is because we can't get too close to the speed of sound uh, at the tips of the rotor blades. If we get too close to that, um, uh, the drag buildup becomes too large. And so we stay at a, a max uh, uh, tip speed of about you know, 0.6 to 0.7 uh, uh, Mach. 
so what that means in particular is if you take a given rotor size and you see, well, how fast can I spin this? You know, you're, it, it's, you can spin about 76% of the speed that you would be able to spin that same rotor uh, on Earth uh, without uh, running into uh, tip Mach number constraints. Uh, this affects the thrust because the thrust scales as a square of the rotor speed and in proportion to the density. And so when you put those things together, you see that for a given rotor size, you know, the max thrust that you could get on Mars from that rotor is about 0.6% of what it would be on Earth. Well, that's obviously, you know, uh, a tiny number and it, uh, you know, you might wonder whether, it, you know, it's, it's even possible to design something with, with these kind of numbers. And this is where we, you know, fortunately get to take some credit for the fact that we have lower gravity. Because of that, the maximum mass that we could carry with a uh, rotor of particular size is about one and a half percent of what it, uh, the maximum mass that we could carry with the same rotor size on Earth. That's still a small number, obviously, and to sort of add insult to injury, um, the Power also doesn't scale in a, in a uh, in an advantageous way because the lower density, the uh, the ideal hover power, uh, sort of the power requirements. If all your energy went into move, you know adding momentum to the air uh, to stay and hover, uh, scales in such a way that that you need you know about twice as much uh, uh, power for the same amount of mass and uh, same rotor size on Mars. So. The reason I wanted to, to, to show you this is, you know, just from this kind of basic scaling arguments, there is sort of some fairly obvious things that emerge, you know, about what will drive the design. So we go on to the uh, next slide, slide number nine, there's sort of a big picture that emerges, which is that mass and power are, you know, primary design drivers for uh, for uh, a helicopter on Mars. In particular, you're going to need to make the rotor as big as you can get away with and spin it as fast as you can get away with and then add on a small fuselage to that that will have to carry everything else. And of that everything else, batteries, you know, will take up uh, a, a good amount of the available mass and there's going to be little mass available for everything else. So that's, the, you know, the essence of, you know, what drives the design uh, uh, for the Mars helicopter. Now, given these challenges, uh, early on, uh, there were a lot of questions, you know, whether this would be possible at all. You know, can you actually get off the ground with a helicopter in Mars uh, atmospheric conditions? And so, or to put it differently, you know, if you look at slide 10, I posed a question that people were asking back then, you know, can helicopter flight be achieved on Mars, you know, in a sort of fundamental way? And to uh, help answer that, we in back in 2014 um, built a small demonstration vehicle. Uh, it's a small experiment that we did. Uh, you can flip to slide 11. You will see it there. There's a, it's a, a tiny little vehicle uh, that weighs uh, 30, 40 grams or something like that, and it um, is sitting here on the floor of the 25-foot space simulator at JPL in Mars and atmospheric conditions. So we built this vehicle. Basically, according to Earth principles, uh, but spun the rotor faster in order to generate enough thrust. Um, and then, in order, because we have to deal with Earth gravity, 
we provided power through a, an umbilical and we didn't have any or, onboard avionics or controls. Instead, there was an operator on the outside with a remote control uh, looking at a video feed. And they were going to, you know, use this to show that, yeah, you know, you can get a helicopter, you know, off the ground and fly it in Mars atmospheric conditions. So you can go ahead. This is a video. So if you can go ahead and try to play this, I hope it'll play for everyone. Um, and I won't try to narrate this sort of second by second, um, but if you are able to play it, uh, what you will see is that the helicopter does indeed come off the ground, but that's you know about it, all you can say about it. It's it's um, turned out that actually maintaining stable hover um, was not possible. Uh, the operator could not get it under control. And so this was uh, kind of an important lesson learned for us, uh, which is if you're going to build a helicopter for Mars, you need to really design it for Mars. It's uh, not enough to just focus on, on you know, uh, generating enough thrust. Uh, there are other aspects and differences of flying a helicopter in a Mars environment that, uh, that have to be taken into uh, account. And so going on to slide number 12, the question that I posed earlier was was uh, was um, made slightly more precise uh, in the sense of asking, uh, can controlled helicopter flight be achieved on Mars? Um, so that then became sort of the central question that, that kicked off the next phase of this project, uh, which was an eight-month effort in 2015-2016 to demonstrate controlled flight in Mars atmosphere. And in this case, uh, we did so, we decided we're going to do this now with a full-size rotor. We're not going to build, you know, any, you know, 40-gram vehicles anymore. We're going to do this a full-size um, rotor and demonstrate that, that we can really fly this thing. And so this effort was now heavily driven by flight dynamics modeling. Uh, we surveyed the insights that, you know, a helicopter needs to be built not only to, to give, you know, you enough uh Thrust, but it needs to be built to have the right uh, controllability or handling qualities. Um, and so, part of that effort was uh, also do you know a fair amount of, of flight dynamics modeling. In particular, we uh, started working on our own uh, uh, flight dynamics model, which is called Helicap, uh, uh, and. Uh, this um, image you see on this slide is actually also a video. A short video that just shows you sort of an early model from that uh, simulation tool of what we thought the open loop response of the helicopter would be. That would be, you know, is um, the uh, the response of the helicopter without any controls. And and that natural response is, you know, for the helicopter to fall down, which is it has in common with with other helicopters uh, that typically are unstable in open loop. Uh, they require control at all times in order to to maintain stability. Uh, so going on to slide 14, I want to you know digress just a little bit from the narrative here and then just tell you a little bit about how the um, helicopter is controlled. Um, a lot of uh, of small scale uh, um, drones, commercial drones that you find, uh, are uh, multi-copters that are uh, controlled primarily using variable RPM. Uh, we don't do that for the Mars helicopter. We maintain constant RPM during flight and instead control the helicopter using variable pitch. 
what that means is we move or uh, we change the the angle uh, of the uh, of the blade as it passes through the air, and because we change the angle uh, of the airfoil relative to the you know uh, to the wind, uh, it we can modulate the amount of lift and drag that is uh, uh, that is produced by the blade. Uh, and the way that we can control the pitch is via servos uh, that move a swash plate on the rotor. And a swash plate is a mechanical uh, mechanism that uh, that basically translates angles in the non-rotating rotating frame of the of the helicopter into the rotating rotating frame of the uh, blades. Uh, so this is a typical mechanism that you find in most full-scale helicopters. Uh, and using these uh, 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 servos with the swash plates, we can achieve two types of pitch variation. Uh, it's what we call collective control, where we change the, so to speak, the average blade pitch over a rotation of the rotor. And cyclic control, where we change the blade, uh, blade pitch periodically. Uh, that means we can pitch the blade up on one side of the rotor disc and down on the other side of the rotor disc periodically. And what that does is it creates an asymmetric lift over the rotor disc, uh, which uh, we use to get the moments that we need for roll and pitch control. Um, so that was slide 15. Uh, I forgot to call that out. Uh, going on to slide 16, um, um, the way that we use the, these degrees of freedom in the controls uh, in the context of a coaxial helicopter like this is roughly as illustrated on this slide. Uh, to control the helicopter in the vertical direction. We use the collectives on both rotors in the same direction. That's called symmetric collective. Uh, that changes the overall thrust. Uh, for rotation about the vertical axis, we use the collectives in opposite directions. That, you know, that roughly maintains the same level of thrust, but changes the drag on each rotor uh, to create a moment about the vertical axis. And then we use the cyclic inputs to produce uh, moments, uh, roll and pitch moments. And that allows us to tilt the vehicle, which allows us to reorient the thrust vector to give us controllability of, in the horizontal uh, position. Now, going on to slide 17, as I mentioned, um, there are some differences um, between um, flying a helicopter on, on Mars versus uh, flying one on uh, Earth, which are not limited to just uh, the amount of thrust that you can produce. And that became clear as we started to really look into the flight dynamics aspect. Uh, and uh, a lot of this is related to the rotor dynamics, and in particular the flap dynamics uh, of the rotor. That means the dynamics of blade flapping, which is sort of the up and down motion of the blade. Now, this topic that I could talk about uh, quite extensively, but I'll just uh, sort of summarize it here by saying that, that a central difference uh, between Earth uh, and uh, Mars is the amount of damping in that uh, flap motion. So the blade, uh, in the flap motion of the blade is, is like a mass spring damper system where uh, you have restoring forces uh, from centrifugal stiffening and structural stiffness of the blade, and that damping is primarily aerodynamic. And of course, the aerodynamic damping then becomes much uh, smaller uh, on Mars relative to Earth. And so you basically get a mass spring damper with less damping. And of course, a mass spring damper uh, with, uh, with a small amount of damping um, 
react differently to external inputs uh, compared to one with high damping. And in particular, it changes the response to periodic inputs to the rotor, whether they are cyclic control inputs or inputs from winds and gusts. So it changes the fundamental response to those inputs. And what it also does is it, it introduces some highly oscillatory modes into the system, uh, modes that are there uh, for helicopters on Earth as well. They just are much better damped. Um, and from a controls point of view, uh, we don't like uh, mo you know, highly oscillatory uh, modes of resonance in the system that um, we might interact with with the controller. Uh, in the worst case, a control system could could have an interaction with that that drives the mode unstable, and so so we try to to avoid having modes like that in frequency ranges where we, it might uh, couple into the control system. And so the mitigation to this is what we discovered is that uh, to make this helicopter flyable, uh, we're going to need to make the rotor very stiff, uh, much stiffer than than you typically require in an earth setting. Uh, in particular, for this rotor, um, we we produce a rotor that's um, uh, that has a flap frequency of about 80 to 90 hertz uh, while it's rotating. So that is is very stiff. And that was achieved with a custom blade design using a foam core with a carbon fiber skin. So an incredibly light and very stiff blade. Um, and if you flip to slide 18, you see what that looks like. Uh, that is the blades as they were uh, produced for the demonstration vehicle that we built as part of this controlled flight demonstration effort. And so you see here, this is the, the vehicle that we flew. And uh, uh, you see that... It has full-size rotors, but a very slim fuselage. Uh, the reason is, again, that we have to deal with Earth gravity. And so we took away anything that's not essential, uh, and that is in particular the batteries. We provide power uh, through the through an umbilical to the ground. And also uh, the avionics, uh, the computing elements are all on the ground, and we communicate with the vehicle to a serial line. Um, one thing that you might also notice here are these uh, silver spheres on the, uh, on the vehicle. Um, they are targets for a uh, motion tracking system called VICON, which we use together with an onboard uh, inertial measurement unit, or IMU, uh, to provide navigation for the vehicle for this uh, effort. Going on to slide 19, this just shows the path to controlled flight that we took as part of that effort. Uh, I already mentioned that we spent uh, considerable effort on modeling and simulation, which influenced the vehicle design and vice versa. And after that, we had a campaign of so-called system identification, which is basically a series of experiments conducted in Mars atmospheric conditions to determine the true dynamics of the helicopter as opposed to, to just what our models told us. And once we did that, we could then finalize the control design uh, perform a test of attitude control on the gimbal before moving on to free flight. Um, going on to slide 20, that's a video. Uh, if you're able to play it, I suggest um, it's a pretty long video, so I suggest kind of skipping to you know halfway in there, and you can see what this is about. Uh, this is one of our system identification experiments that we call the swinging arm system identification. Um, one of the things that we needed to determine was the sensitivity of the helicopter to edgewise flow over the rotor. 
And since we didn't have a wind tunnel that we could do that in, and we didn't, uh, what we what we did was do this sort of poor man's wind tunnel where we swung the helicopter back and forth on an actuated arm, and then we uh, measured the uh, react the forces and torques in response to that uh, to help us determine that sensitivity. That's an example of of one of the uh, experiments as part of the system identification campaign. Uh, Going on to slide 21, uh, I suggest playing this with the sound enabled if you can. Uh, that's a video of our first free flight. Um, so now we no longer are doing any joysticking or anything from the outside with this helicopter. This is all onboard uh, flight control in this case. Um, the helicopter spins up to 2600 RPM and then takes off and hovers before landing again. Um, what you'll see um, is that the helicopter it sort of wanders off a little bit, you know, and then comes back to the center. And that's a control system. You know, it's current, it uh, continuously has to uh, to fight disturbances in order to stay centered. And we do have uh, pretty significant disturbances in this environment because we're operating in a closed volume. Even though it's a large vacuum chamber, we move a lot of air around uh, with the rotors when we're spinning them uh, and producing thrust. And that air gets recirculated back and, and meets the vehicle again as winds uh, and gusts that the vehicle has to uh, to fight. So this now was sort of, you know, a big victory in the sense of, you know, approving beyond uh, doubt that, that not only can you produce enough thrust, uh, and Mars atmospheric conditions, but you can also keep a vehicle under control uh, in that environment. And so that allowed us at that point to to really go forward with a full-fledged flight design. Uh, so if you go to, uh, to slide 22 now, um, the flight design retained uh, the main features of the demonstration vehicle, certainly in terms of, of the aerodynamics and the, on the flight controls. But uh, there's a lot more that has to go on the vehicle, you know, to make it ready for Mars flight. Uh, in particular, we have to carry our own batteries and solar panel and avionics and sensors and so on. And so it obviously is a heavier vehicle for that reason. And one of the big enabling factors for being able to pack all of the necessary functionality into into 1.8 kilogram vehicle uh, is that we heavily leveraged uh, lightweight commercial off-the-shelf technology. Uh, so there's a lot of technology in, uh, that's been developed uh, in recent years. Uh, a lot of it aimed towards the cell phone markets and drone markets uh, that we benefited from in this project. Uh, we picked those uh, commercial technologies and then selectively qualified them for uh, for this particular project uh, uh, by doing tests like uh, thermal cycling and radiation testing on, on the and on the components. Uh, I've got a question. This is Harley. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you'll be getting into this. Uh, it's a uh, nice little graphic. The sensors and cameras. Mm -hmm. um, are, is, uh, is, that, is that the science package, or are those sensors slash cameras for navigation, orientations on a boat? 
Mostly for, for uh, so most of them are for navigation, but then we have a high resolution color camera that we're carrying as well that has no role in navigation, it's just for taking pictures. And that's sort of, you know, so to speak, the payload here. That's what we take pictures, you know, pretty pictures and send them back to it. Okay, got it. Thank you. Okay, so. Yeah, the, the graphic here shows, you know, certain main components of the system, the rotor system, the landing uh, system, the fuselage, which contains the batteries and the sensors and cameras and the avionics, and then the solar panel on top and the, and the, and the telecom antenna on top of that again. Uh, going to slide 23, I'm going to just say a little bit about some of these uh, various uh, systems. So the rotor system uh, has uh, two, uh, two rotors that are pretty much the same. They both have uh, collective control, cyclic control, collective from minus 4.5 to 17.5 degrees, and cyclic from minus 10 to plus 10. Uh, the main material is carbon fiber composites for weight and strength. And then the servos that, dry, uh, that move the swatch plates uh, are brushed servo motors uh, uh, using Maxon parts. Uh, and then we have some custom uh, custom brushless uh, propulsion motors uh, with co-located drive electronics. So these are 46-pole uh, hand-wound motors with square copper wire that are, are quite uh, impressive in their own uh, right. Uh, going on to uh, slide 24, uh, which uh, is about the landing gear, uh, when we're stored on the – okay, I, I thought I heard a question there, but, uh, but if there isn't one, I'll, I'll keep going. Um, the landing gear, when we are stowed on the rover, the landing gear, uh, the landing legs have to be folded in order to make it uh, make it fit. And so they have the necessary mechanisms for that, uh, a deployment hinge with a latch, uh, uh, and that's deployed as part of the uh, of the overall deployment sequence uh, after landing. Um, the Main material again is lightweight carbon fiber, uh, and then we have a titanium flexor near the shoulders to give the legs flexibility uh, when we when we land to soften the impact during landing. And parallel with that, we also have an aluminum uh, damping flexor. And so the the reason that's there is is uh, if you if you come down and you land at a, a relatively uh, high vertical velocity, uh, that uh, damper uh, deforms slightly and absorbs some of the energy uh, of the helicopter. And that helps us um, uh, land safely at vertical uh, uh, contact velocities of up to about two meters per second. And that sort of then, you know, puts a requirement on the control system to deliver the helicopter uh, uh, at velocities below that. Uh, and, of course, we also have requirements on on uh, uh, on horizontal velocity and roll and pitch and roll and pitch rates and so on. Uh, going on to slide 25, um, the avionics and communications um, are made up of cost parts uh, selected uh, for thermal and radiation tolerance with some custom mitigations in some places. Um, the computing consists of multiple different elements. There's a central FPGA that's radiation tolerant that acts as a, as a kind of switchboard with all the I.O. to the uh, to the sensors and the actuators. And it connects to the other computing elements. Uh, in particular, we have what we call a flight computer that's made up, up of two, um, two um, microcontrollers. 
there are two of them because one is effectively kept warm and waiting in the wings to take over if the primary microcontroller has a fault. Uh, and the reason we can detect that a fault occurs on the primary one is because it has uh, some called a dual lockstep error detection. Uh, what that means is that internally it has two cores that are driven in parallel, and then we do and then there's a cycle by cycle detection of the outputs uh, to make sure that they're always in agreement. And so if there is a, a, a single event upset um, of that part. Uh, the likelihood is that there will be disagreement between those two cores and, and uh, the flag will be set to allow us to then uh, hand control over to the secondary. Um, so that flight computer uh, has, uh, it, it contains all of the most essential low-level uh, controls necessary to kind of you know, keep the helicopter right side up um, and, and keep flying it. Um, but it doesn't have enough horsepower to do everything in particular, there's one aspect of this that, that requires a lot of uh, computing throughput, and that is navigation, which I'll talk about in a moment, but it, it's based on uh, visual feature detection and tracking. So we, produce a lot, we uh, process a large amount of image data on the fly, and so we need more uh, computing throughput for that. And so for that, we have another commercial part, uh, a Snap, Snapdragon flight processor, which is a uh, Linux-based system on a on a, on CPU, a quad uh, core CPU with 2.26 gigahertz uh, clock frequency. Uh, so this is quite a powerful system, uh, and and we use that for navigation and other high-level uh, functionality. And should that computer go down, uh, the flight computer and the microprocessor uh, microcontroller. Um, has the ability to fly the helicopter for a limited period of time without getting updates from the nav computer, and so it can then execute an emergency landing uh, if necessary. Uh, Howard? Yes. Yeah, let me ask a question here. I'm, I'm interested in the comm system. Now, the mm -hmm. comm we're talking about, the 802.15, this is to the rover, correct? Yeah, so we have basically a two-node network. So we have a counterpart to a base station on the uh, on the rover. Okay, well, I, uh, I guess my question is, if your if your bit rate is high enough, and if the connection is is continuous, mm -hmm. uh, you need a lot of smarts on that helicopter for the feature detection and tracking. I guess you're going to talk about that in a little. To what extent can those smarts be on the rover instead? Uh, so. You know, you could you could imagine things like that, right? But you do run into issues of reliability of the communications, uh, you know, for one thing, and the latency inherent in that. And, and you know, it's challenging enough in a sense to have, you know, these different compute elements on the helicopter having to separate uh, the, the navigation functionality from the lower-level flight control functionality and dealing with the fact that, you, in this case, we have... A, we have an asynchronous communication, and we have it's a non-real-time Linux operating system on the on the uh, nav computer, and just the challenges that come with that are, are you know, in a sense, uh, enough. Um, having it, you know, live uh, on the rover, um, although you could certainly imagine something like that. I, I think you know it it does uh, it would pose a whole new set of challenges. Okay, yeah, I guess I'm just thinking that on the rover, you've got lots more power. 
Um, and, and so, uh, do, doing hard things like feature detection would probably be easier, but it sounds like, like you say, from a reliability standpoint, it's, it's certainly preferable to have it on the, on the helicopter. So thank, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, and, 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 uh, and in terms of, you know, computing power, this is really, you know, this is, this is a lot of, of, uh, horsepower for, for something that, you know, we're flying in space. Um, uh, on the Snapdragon uh, board, so it, it's it's actually quite quite an impressive piece of hardware. Um, now, going on to um, slide 26. Uh, so on the power, energy, and thermal. So we have a solar panel uh, that's uh, called an inverted metamorphic quadruple junction. You know, solar cells. Um, I'm I'm not an expert. Uh, <laughs> On solar cells, I'm not sure I can explain to you what that uh, what that really means. Uh, but it was uh, it was built especially for uh, for the Mars helicopter by uh, Solero, and it's tuned for the light spectrum on Mars uh, for our purposes. Uh, the battery again, we use COTS um, parts, six uh, six um, Sony cells, lithium-ion uh, battery cells. As I mentioned before, in response to one of the questions, uh, it can provide a peak power of, of 510 watts if we need that uh, during flight. Uh, on the thermal side, uh, it's important to keep certain parts of the helicopter warm, especially during the, uh, the nights on Mars where temperatures can get down to like minus 90 or minus 100 degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, and so in particular, we need to keep the batteries warm and, and the various electronics and sensors. And so we do that using survival heaters uh, within this uh, fuselage um, underneath the rotor. And that fuselage is, is insulated with a CO2 gas gap um, um, of about uh, 30 millimeters. Now going on to uh, slide 27. Uh, this shows how the electronics on the helicopter are organized. Uh, so if you take away the uh, uh, the outer shell of the fuselage, uh, inside you'll see that we have the battery pack uh, uh, at the center. And around there, there's a cube uh, where five sides are made up of printed circuit boards uh, uh, with the various uh, electronics uh, of the vehicle. So those uh, five PCBs, uh, Host the uh, the or uh, the the battery uh, battery interface board uh, that uh, contains the uh, battery monitoring monitoring circuitry, uh, the helicopter power board that has the voltage regulators for the helicopter. Then there is the FPGA and flight control board, uh, which hosts, of course, the FPGA and the microcontrollers that make up the uh, uh, the flight controller uh, or uh, um, flight control computer, flight, the flight computer. Um, we have a nav carry board, which uh, uh, hosts uh, this uh, Snapdragon navigation computer, and then the telecom board that uh, hosts the uh, the commercial chipset uh, implementing the uh, the Zigbee uh, communication protocol. Uh, on slide 28, you'll see a summary of the sensors on the vehicle. Um, they are also uh, all commercial parts. Uh, we have an IMU, this inertial measurement unit, uh, with gyros and accelerometers uh, that's made by Bosch. And it's a type of thing that you would normally find in a cell phone. Um, I think it weighs about 0.1 grams. Uh, 
And uh, in addition to that, we also have an inclinometer, which is also it's also just like the IMU. It's may, it's it's got uh, MEMS accelerometers inside, uh, but they have better uh, biostability properties than the ones on the IMU itself. And so we have that there so that we can calibrate out some of the accelerometer bias prior to flight on the IMU. Uh, then we have uh, a laser rangefinder uh, that is a Garmin uh, unit. And we have a navigation camera, and that's a monochrome 640 by 480 uh, camera that looks directly down on the ground. And in addition to that, we have a separate camera that we call a return to earth camera, which is uh, a uh, high resolution uh, color camera. Going on to slide 29, uh, the guidance and control for the helicopter is fairly classical in some sense, uh, you know, in terms of the control architecture. Uh, meaning it, it consists of an outer position loop uh, wrapped around an inner uh, attitude loop. Um, in terms of the guidance, we don't do onboard decision-making in terms of where we go with the helicopter. Uh, the uh, ground provides waypoints ahead of flight, and then the guidance is responsible for merely uh, producing smooth trajectories between those ground-provided waypoints with certain uh, constraints on things like... Uh, uh, like maximum velocity and maximum acceleration and so forth. Uh, the most challenging parts of uh, the flight from a guidance and control point of view are the takeoffs and landings. Um, for takeoff, the strategy that we've adopted is to uh, quote-unquote jump off the ground, meaning we apply a fixed thrust uh, that's significantly higher than uh, than hover thrust, uh, in order to get us off the ground, then we only apply limited control during this phase, only uh, controlling the uh, the attitude rates. And then once we are off the ground, we then switch to full control uh, and follow the guided trajectory uh, to the top of the climb. On landing, um, we also we fly vertically uh, towards the ground at a constant speed of about one meter per second. And then when we detect that we met the ground, we we uh, um, uh, lower the collectives uh, to kill the thrust and turn off all the controls. Uh, we don't have any dedicated sensors for de uh, detecting ground contact. Instead, we use the de residuals in the controller uh, to detect that we met the ground. Basically, if the controller is no longer able to follow uh, the trajectory that it's supposed to follow, it's an indication that we've met the ground. Uh, what I didn't mention here, which I think is also relevant, uh, is uh, is because we have you know concerns about dust when we're close to the ground. We don't use the sensors that that could be obscured by dust, in particular the camera and the uh, altimeter, uh, when we are about one rotor diameter uh, within uh, the ground. Going on to slide 30. Um, as I mentioned before, navigation is based on visual feature detection and tracking. Uh, so the the, uh, the uh, sort of the high level summary of that is we we detect features in base uh, in base images or base frames, and then we track those same features in subsequent search uh, frames. Um, and we take those features and we map them down on a on a, on a ground plane that we assume is known and that we can measure the distance to using the laser rangefinder. And then we basically look at how the measured uh, uh, feature locations 
compare to where we predict those same feature locations should be based on the, the motion of the vehicle from the IMU. And so we have a, uh, it's, uh, then a residual, uh, in terms of, of the difference between the predicted feature locations and the detected feature locations. And those residuals are used in an external Kalman filter, uh, to correct the estimates of the navigation solution. So this is, uh, the framework that does this, uh, we call Maven. Uh, and it was developed here at JPL, uh, for, uh, originally for comet exploration. Let, let, let me ask, Hillard, I think you said in one of your previous slides that you do have an IMU on board. That's so mm-hmm. if an IMU, to some extent, the helicopter knows where it is. Um, what, how, how, how good is that IMU? So the IMU is, is fairly decent when it comes to propagating attitude. Uh, so it could propagate attitude, you know, over the course of the flight and, and, and not drift by, by too many degrees. Um, but you can't rely on an IMU, on a, certainly not on this, you know, this type of IMU to, uh, to reliably integrate position. It drifts up, you know, very rapidly. Okay. Case. And so, so the IMU is, is the backbone of the navigation algorithm. It takes you from one time step to the next. Uh, and, you know, and you can coast on that for limited periods of time, but it needs to be corrected. Yeah. Wow. And that's where the, uh, the, uh, visual, uh, de- uh, feature detection tracking comes in. It helps you see how you're moving across the terrain below and, and, and correct the, uh, uh, the estimates that way. And, and also the laser rangefinder, which, uh, which tells you how high you are, and it also gives you crucial information that in in terms of uh, how far away the features that you're looking are are from you, uh, and that helps resolve a, a scale ambiguity that you would otherwise um, uh, have a hard time resolving. Okay, yeah, that's good. I, I am used do drift, and so basically your feature detection and tracking is to sort of normalize the IMU. They're continually yeah, up. it's to pull it's to pull it back and then correct those, yeah, so that they don't drift off uh, uh, into the weeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks very much. Mm-hmm. Um, on slide thirty-one, you see how we are accommodated on the rover uh, in the stowed configuration. Uh, you see the helicopter called out below there, and it's sort of flat like a pancake when it's uh, when it's stowed. And then uh, it swings out and legs uh, fold out uh, during deployment. Uh, and you can also see indicated here the base station. Uh, that's our counterpart on the rover and the base station antenna. Uh, going on to slide 32, um, I want to say a little bit about testing in VNV. Uh, of course, that's an important part of a project like this, and there are multiple aspects of it. There's a component level testing, uh, and then and and then uh, environmental testing of the whole system, and then there is the aerodynamics and flight related uh, flight control related testing, and that's what uh, you know. Uh, what's illustrated in this slide is is how that's uh, uh, organized in our project. Um, what are the various components to that? There's a system identification component that I mentioned before that tells us about the true uh, um, flight dynamics of the vehicle. That feeds into the control design and the offline robustness verification of the controllers and also informs our flight simulation using the Helicat tool that I mentioned before. And then we have the closed loop uh, flight testing that we do in a 25 foot space simulator. Um, and in parallel with that, we have testing on the navigation system. And that's not, you know, the most useful place to test that is not in the 25-foot space simulator where we test a lot of the other things. 
uh, because it doesn't look for, you know, anything like Mars. And so for that, we do testing primarily outdoors on a, a uh, on a surrogate platform that carries the uh, uh, helicopter uh, avionics and sensors or a copy of those. Um, and then also on the bottom uh, right here, you see what we call integrated flight testing is where we uh, where we do combine everything just to make sure that everything plays nice together and fly the helicopter using visual inertial navigation in the right environment. Uh, so on slide 33, a little bit about system identification. I already touched upon this. Uh, there are multiple configurations. There is a sort of fixed on force torque sensor configuration where we exercise the controls and see force and torques in response. There's a swinging arm and gimbal configurations. And then one of the issues that we have uh, that we had initially was that we had no way to test the helicopter in forward flight. That's obviously an important aspect, not only because the helicopter has to move forward to go anywhere, but also because you're operating in wind on Mars. And so you have to have a way to test the dynamics of the helicopter when the air around it is energized. And for that purpose, we built um, later in the project what we call a wind wall, which is, is basically an open section wind tunnel inside the 25-foot space simulator. Uh, and it's, it's a wall of fans, about 900 CPU-type fans that blow air at the helicopter at about 11 meters per second. And in that environment, we could then effectively do the same kinds of experiments that we previously did in Hover to see how the dynamics were affected by, by the flow. Going on to uh, slide 34, uh, there's a video there that you can play while I'm talking. Uh, it illustrates the navigation testing that I mentioned before um, that happens outdoors. Uh, in the video, you'll see uh, see a flight with a commercial platform with the Mars uh, helicopter uh, avionics and sensors. And the green dots indicate features that we detect and then track for a short period of time before we reacquire a new base frame and new features. And on the right of this slide, you'll see some examples of results of the position and velocities that are estimated relative to ground truth. And what's noticeable about this is that, uh, and that is that we, um, we achieve a good velocity estimate with bounded errors, which is very important for maintaining stability of the helicopter. Uh, but it's also noticeable that, that the uh, position is not inherently bounded because we don't have any absolute uh, landmarks or references uh, here. Uh, position will drift over time. And so the key in our case is that we've designed a system where the drift rate is low enough uh, that uh, that by the end of the flight, we're still, uh, the error accumulated is not uh, too large for our purposes. The next slide, uh, 35, slide 35, also has a video that you can play while I'm talking. This just illustrates the role of uh, of the simulation in the testing and BNV process. Uh, we do Monte Carlo simulations using the Helicat framework, uh, where we can simulate everything, including sensors and actuators. In the video, you'll see in, in the bottom right half, uh, or the bottom right, uh, you'll see uh, what the view looks like from the navigation camera in the simulation. And that's fed into the flight controls, which uh, are in the loop for the simulation. And we can do Monte Carlos, where we vary the environment and the properties of of, uh, of the helicopter uh, to to uh, uh, to verify the robustness of the system. On slide 36, 
is yet another video. If you play it, you'll see an example of these the testing of the integrated flight system, where we, uh, and this is one of the later flights that we did with an engineering development model that looks very much like the uh, final flight article. And what's special about this is now we're flying uh, in the Mars atmosphere conditions, but with onboard uh, visual inertial navigation. That's the reason why you see all these places, uh, you know, uh, captain uh, tape markers on the floor, so that the navigation system has something to look at. And you'll also see in this video the view from the navigation camera, uh, so you see what that has to work with in terms of, of uh, 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 delivering a navigation solution. And, and one thing to mention about this is you'll see that there's a string uh, on top of the helicopter. Uh, and the reason for that is that this is now a you know, 1.8 kilogram vehicle, so it's, it's, not, uh, it's too heavy to, for the helicopter to lift itself in Earth gravity. And so it needs uh, some help. And so the gravity offload system provides effectively a constant force uh, that accounts for the difference between the weight on, on Earth versus the weight of Mars. That's one of the challenges that we had to do resolve when flying these heavier vehicles in the Mars density. Uh, so going on to slide 37, that's my last slide. Uh, and it's just a reiteration, in a sense, of what I uh, began by saying is, you know, what we, how we envision uh, helicopters opening doors to, to new types of exploration on Mars. Uh, with our current uh, capabilities, we have orbiters and landers and rovers. And we, we hope to augment that with helicopters uh, that could act, you know, either in, in, uh, together with uh, a rover as a scout or be used as an independent uh, exploration platform. Or possibly in the future, you know, we could imagine doing things like regional exploration using multiple helicopters or going to inaccessible areas or biologically sensitive areas using uh, small helicopters. Um, so that was my last slide. Uh, I think I, I also more or less out of time here. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.